לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. This is, this is our like 100 and something broadcast. Anyway, big shout out. A lot of birthdays in the Barry Chesler household, right? Happy birthday to all. Yes, yeah, Aliza so is 27 today. Rafi on Thursday will be 29. And Gali will be 16. And um, no, I, I, I'm all messed up. I think it's Friday and Sunday. All right. 20, 19th, 22nd, and 24th. Beautiful. We want to say a big, big hello to our friends at Machane Ramah in the Berkshires, where we are now in our, I don't know how many years of doing the Parsha talk. We are missing you, but we are looking forward to having you hear us talk about this amazing Parsha. Parsha Pinchas. Pinchas, the Parsha name for this individual, one of the few Parshiot in the Torah that are named for individuals. We don't have to go through the trivia right now. But um, just can we give the footnote about Pinchas without going too much in uh, giving too much detail? We met Pinchas uh, last week uh, because of what, Rabbi Kalmanovsky? Well, we, we got to have a little detail, but um, sure. <laughs> you can't you can't do it without a little bit of detail. But it, it's I, I will introduce it by one of the things we said in the in the run up is that this this part is is about Pinchas, although. The thing that Pinchas is most famous for happened in last week's reading. And there may be, in fact, a contrast, kind of a critical contrast between what he is famous for and, and the other kinds of leadership that people hold. Short form, the Midianites, after the, after the whole business with, with the Moabites, the Moabites last week and the Midianites are portrayed as a team. Um, the king of Moab, Balak, he speaks to the Zikne Midian, the elders of Midian, to try to work out how they can can, can uh, hold back, you know, this Israelite onslaught. And when when Bilam's cursing thing doesn't work, or Bilam is, is, is moved to bless instead of cursing, they try something else, and they try a kind of uh, sexual thing. There's a, there's a uh, kind of orgiastic scene in which the Israelite men and the Midianite women are getting oh, to know each other, getting to know each other. And there's one... Prince Zimri ben Salu and this one Midianite princess Kozbi Batsur, and they are uh, they are flagrantly flagrantly demonstrating that they would like these people to merge. And Pinchas, they are they are in such a position that Pinchas takes a a spear and kills them both with one single spear blow. Okay, so you can imagine how how he could get one spear blow through two people. And in this act of zealous rage, um, then that turns back that turns back the divine rage. Now, 
Pinchas is, is therefore kind of known throughout, um, he, he's, he uh, throughout Jewish you know, lore as the person who is, is totally uh, full of righteous rage, zealous rage, and, but it spills over into violence. And then today's partial begins that God says a, a praiseworthy thing, you know, praise, they, Pinchas, Heshivet Hamati, you know, you, you, you uh, diverted my anger, and, and I didn't, I was going to destroy the whole people, but Pinchas, Pinchas diverted my anger. Uh, uh, le, uh, so therefore, I give him Briti Shalom, my covenant of peace, uh, God says about Pinchas. I would say that in that idea of giving my covenant of peace, there's a not so, you know, not, not too hard to see the, a little bit of backhanded criticism there that Pinchas didn't really act very peacefully. And, and I would say that in, in, in Talmud says, Pinchas chachamim. Talmud says very clearly, Pinchas did not, you know, Pinchas's behavior did not accord with what the sages would have wanted. And, and I, I'm, I'm with you. I think that, that this Taliban-y kind of, you know, you have to kill the people who are doing the things that you think are wrong is not a, is not, that doesn't represent rabbinic Judaism with its very moderate dis, discourse. You know, we talk about things. We don't, we don't take spears. And, and so I'm, it's, it's, I find it hard to, I find it hard to like wave the Pinchas flag. No, I, I think I, I you know, we're, I, we're all in agreement on, on this act of zeal. In fact, I would, I would try and understand the, the, the fact that he gets placed in the in the sanctuary, Brit Kunat Olam, and that in a way that that's to try and contain that zeal and to channel that in 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 the way that will be least dangerous to the to the population. In other words, you can you can stay inside the sanctuary. It's all it's not a, a it's not a penalty. It's not the penalty box, but it's it's a it's a it's a box that holds him, and that channels that whatever that impossible uh, impulse is, um, in order for that impulse not to take root and become the mainstream. You know, extremism exists, and and this is you know something that we we learn we we see it we see it around us. Um, but when it inhabits the mainstream, that's that's when it becomes really really problematic for all of us. What I would add here is that we lose sight in our discussion of Pinchas when we focus on his zeal of God's jealousy. So the verse says, that Pinchas is zealous against my jealousy. That's God talking. And one of the things that we have to think about, had Pinchas not acted, God's anger at the people would have resulted in even more death. You know, it's instructive, Jeremy, as you were noting, the way the rabbis divide the parshiot. So 24,000 people die in the last verse of last week's parsha. And here, Pinchas is going to get the covenant of peace, um, which admittedly, as you point out, is, uh, is nuanced. But I, I think that we, we have to take into account the divine rage here and that Pinchas, his zeal matches God's rage. And perhaps he's put in the, the sanctuary because he has to protect the people from God. Mm. 
And therefore, he can be, he can offset God in the sanctuary so that God doesn't spill out into the people to their great harm. Interesting. Can I, can I say, by the way, we, we talked again before the sort of recording that uh, there's, maybe we'll get to this in the course of our discussion, that there's some variations about the Haftarot at this time of year. Um, there's a Haftarot that's associated with Pinchas. It's, it's not all that often read. Uh, and in, in most American synagogues, you won't, you won't be reading it this week. Although in Israeli synagogues where the, uh, where the, the Torah readings are a little bit discrepant between America because of the calendar and the second day of Shavuot this year, second day, the eighth day of Pesach and the second day of Shavuot, um, uh, the, 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 the Haftarah is the story of Eliyahu Hanavi. Eliyahu Hanavi, who, um, this is also the Haftarah for Kitisa, it's another, it's another, part, of the, uh, another part of the cycle, but it's a well-known passage. He's, he's, he puts the prophets of Baal to a test. He defeats them. He kills I think 400 or 500 or a whole lot of prophets of Baal. He's a bloody guy. And unsurprisingly, the, the powers that be, King Ahav and Queen Ezebel, Ahab and Jezebel, they chase him away. He runs away to the desert. He runs away to, uh, to this very place, to Mount Choreb, where Moshe got the Torah. And then he has this great, uh, you know, incredibly powerful passage in which God says, you know, what are you doing here? And, and they'll speak, and I'll say a minute what, what he says. But then God passes by in, in a fire, but God, there's a, he comes out on the on the on the cliff, and and a fire passes by, but God is not in the fire. And then and then a great wind, God is not in a great wind. And then the great rush and the great earthquake, and God is not in the earthquake. And and after the after the after the wind, I guess is the last one. Cold mamadaka, the still small voice, or the still sound of silence, or something like that. Um, but in, when, when, Eliyahu can, when God confronts Eliyahu and says, Malachapo Eliyahu, what are you doing here? Eliyahu says, Vayomer, So Eliyahu says to God, I have been zealous, Kanokineti. Uh, I have been zealous for you for God of hosts, for your people Israel has, has abandoned your covenant and they've destroyed your altar and they've killed your prophets and I alone am left. Uh, Eliyahu speaks with that Pinchasian kind of zeal. And in fact, in the Jewish mystical tradition, I'm not sure if this is in the conventional rabbinics, but it's it's definitely in the Zohar. It says uh, Pinchas hu Eliyahu or Eliyahu Pinchas, whatever, that they are the same character in a kind of reincarnated fashion that they that, that that's like one guy one guy the guy who the guy who killed the Midianite and the guy who kills the prophets of Baal that's like a single character do you know what I it's so, it's so interesting I'm just before you that at the Brit Milah we the first sentences the first verses that we chant at a Brit Milah are Pinchas ben Alazar ben Aaron Kohen Eshiv Hamati right uh um we, we, we invoke Pinchas at a Brit Milah and we invoke Eliyahu at a Brit Milah, you know? Yeah, that's Why? exactly out of that same Midrashic theme. Because they're the same guy. But it's an extreme you know, there's a There's a kind of role reversal here that's interesting in light of a later part of the Parsha because I think most of us would associate the bearer of divine rage with the prophet 
not with the priest. Yeah. But the prophet here, as Jeremy mentioned, it's called the Mamadaka. The so far removed from violence, you could barely hear anything. And the priest, we would associate, I think, more with peace. Certainly there are traditions going back to Pinchas' grandfather, Aharon, that the Kohen represents peace. It's part of the priestly blessing, the rabbinic tradition. Aharon is the Rodev Shalom. And here we have a reversal. And, you know, it's instructive when we think about chapters 28 and 29, which are the Korbanot, the most priestly um, part of the holiday service, the detail of all the sacrifices, that perhaps, the, you know, there's, we're supposed to see an element of zeal in the way that we perform the sacrifices. All right, so let's let's move on from... Can we just uh, say one, one last thing, just to correct my mistake. The order of those things that Elijah sees is wind, earthquake, and fire, and it's after the fire is the last one. So we're talking about the Holy Bible. I at least should get the details right. So nice, nice. <laughs> okay. So speaking of the details, we got a lot of a details in the parsha, the census, with a little bit of family history sprinkled in there. We have this uh, the account of the daughters of Tzalafchad. I know we spoke about that in a previous year, where uh, these Tzalafchad. Uh, 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 he dies without any male heirs, and his daughters come before Moses asking for their inheritance. And you know, fast forward, Moses uh, petitions God for the uh, answer as to what to do in such a situation. And in fact, uh, these women are granted inheritance. Um, but then we move into um, this very, very interesting passage where uh, God says to Moses, "Ale el har ha'avarimaze." Go up to this mountain, Hara Avarim, um, the mount, this mount of what? How would you translate that? Transitions, mount of, of Avarim. <laughs> the cross, the cross, well, it's, it's great because it is the, like the border or the crossover. Okay. Yeah. Go there. And it's, is that, is that going to be Mount Nevo, right? In the end. Go see the land that I am going to give to the children of Israel. And you shall see the land. And you will be gathered to your kin, to your people. You too. Just as Aaron, uh, your brother, was gathered to his people. Okay, so so you know, this is this is not an easy couple of verses to read if especially if you're Moses right and and um I I do want to read these verses with with um some intentional pauses here because um there is a lot of pathos here there's a lot of emotion at least I'm reading it I interpret it with a lot of emotion the emotion of seeing the land and knowing that you're not going to go into the land the emotion of course that you're going to die and the emotion that this death is somehow going to be uh, compared to your brother's death. So, so I want to just let's let's talk about the first one, which is go up to the mountain and see the land, and remind us, Barry, remind us. You know, Moses is not going into the land, and and do you think that that there is an internal struggle in Moses as to I want to get into the land, and I'm not going to be satisfied just by seeing it there is a great deal of pathos here um but 
the idea that Moses is going to look at the land recalls for us the earlier appearances of this idea that of the land that I will show you, which Abraham is told uh, you're to go to the land that I will show you, which becomes the land of Canaan. And when he goes to the Akedah, he's told to go to the land that I will show you once again. And in both cases, in chapter 12 and in chapter 22, things don't happen quite the way that certainly Abraham expects them to be. The land of promise is not quite the promise that one would have been, believed it to be because very quickly Abraham is going to leave the land to go into Egypt because the land cannot support him. And depending on what you think happened at the Akedah, I don't know that Abraham came away from that as ennobled as some people think. That there is something quite diminishing about raising a knife against your son no matter what you do next. But what's most important here, I think, is the comparison of Aaron's death with Moses, because Moses is the one who gets to see the land. There's no record of Aaron climbing the mountain and seeing the land before he dies. He dies, in a sense, in complete loneliness, although he's accompanied, of course, by his son and, um, and his brother. But Moses gets to see the land, and it remains for him a land of promise because it will not be unsullied by history. As we know, not only from the Bible, history is often very messy. It doesn't move at the pace that we'd like it to move, and almost every step forward results in the step sideways or half a step back, sometimes more than a step back. And here we can imagine Moses getting a pristine vision of the land. Now, the question, of course, is whether that's enough to comfort him or to sustain him. And I think most of us think that it isn't because he's been driven these 40 years by wanting to go into the land and doesn't get to do that. It, it, it's, it's such a remarkable scene. I'm, I'm thinking of so many different kinds of images in my mind. You know, recently on, on a recent trip to Israel, uh, we were up uh, in, in the Golan and we were up on a, on a very high mountain. And you know how they have these binoculars, these, um, you know, you, you look through, uh, you know, it's a big, huge thing you look through and uh, they're set up there. And you, you know, you can see into Syria. Now, of course, you know, I have no desire to go into Syria uh, and no longing there. And, and there's a, the idea of a boundary, the, the going up to and seeing it. Uh, reinforces the idea that that you are on this side and you are not going on that side and and you know whenever we we do that kind of tourism or sightseeing and we are in a place where you know we have these kinds of binoculars or we're seeing certain things from a distance we are so conscious and aware of the boundary in front of us and and um so i just i i i wanted to reflect on this just in terms of there is both, you know, joy, but there's also tremendous longing. He wants to be there. He wants to go in there on foot. I don't know, Jeremy. You relate yeah, to that? Well, the, the the foot word is the is is very key word because there's a motif about, you know, walking. Kum ba'aretz. God tells Abraham when when God promises Abraham that that, that he will, you know, have as a possession Eretz Yisrael. Kum walk through the land. There's like a when you walk through someplace, it's like you make a claim. And Barry mentioned, and we were talking beforehand, that Joshua, you know, when Joshua, who will be the general who, who leads the conquest, 
um, you know, wherever your wherever your feet land, that's will be will be belong to you. If you arrive in it, you can make a claim to it. Moshe Rabbeinu never gets there. Moshe Rabbeinu is the symbol of, you know, journey towards a fulfilled, de- but he doesn't get the destiny. There's no destiny for Moshe Rabbeinu. And, you know, one of the things the Bible loves is talking about burial in an ancestral tomb. Moshe is buried, we don't know where, right? He's, he's, nobody knows where he's buried. So Moses is portrayed in, you know, this passage points towards it and, and, and the end of De- Deuteronomy will point towards it, you know, even more fully. Um, Moses is a character whose Torah shapes us, but who himself as an individual never arrives. I find this as a religious motif uh, very effective and moving because life is more about, about the journey than the arrival. However, I can certainly see especially in the context of 20th century or 21st century Zionism, that the never arriving Ba'aretz, um, you know, it was like that, that could be anti the, the fulfillment and bitsuist, you know, accomplishment oriented uh, ethos of, of modern political life. What about the fact, I mean, one of the things that occurs to me that Moses might be desiring uh, upon entry into land is to, not to be a tourist in the sense that we are tourists when we go and we who live outside the land of Israel, but to see ancestral places, to see important places. After all, he is aware that uh, God revealed himself to Abraham there. God, you know, encounter, God had this very, very close relationship to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the land of, of Israel. The, they are buried there. Maybe he wants to see their graves, maybe he wants to see different places. And I mean, I mean, you know, of course I'm projecting a certain desire on him, but you know, it's not only I want to see, you know, certain landmarks, I, w- I want to be where this land is because this land is special. This land is the gift. This land is what, what was promised. And, and this is where our ancestors lived. Is Kehat alive when they go down to Egypt? So, because you know, when you say it in the way, in the way you just said, yeah. um, Levi is Moses's great grandfather, Kahat is his grandfather. So his great grandfather, for sure, you know, was was born in Mesopotamia, but lived in the land of Israel, um, and maybe his grandfather also. Uh, I, I don't remember if he's one of the seventy alive or not, but his grandfather also. Uh, lived really in the land of Israel. So you can think about all the people that we know, even with much less august, um, you know, like heritage tours or roots tours or whatever. Like I go, I went to my, my great, my grandfather was from, was from Minsk, you know, or my grandfather was from Lvov or whatever. And I want to go see where they were from. That, I could that, totally imagine Moshe having absolutely. that. Absolutely. These things have a tremendous uh, pull on our imagination. And, uh, um, you know, it's it's there within. I, w- I don't want to say living memory, but certainly transmitted memory. They're not far from it. The same way that you know, I, I feel uh, you know, three or four generations removed from that experience. You know, it's part. It's, these are stories I grew up with. I learned about the shtetl. I learned about uh, Antipol and Kobrin and Grodno and all those places. And I've certainly had a desire to go back and see them, notwithstanding the fact that. It's really hard to get to those places. 
but but okay so so here is Moses with a, an intense desire to see this land and I would read the, the that verse with um with the pauses that I've placed in there which is you know you're going to see the land pause the Nesafta and you're going to be gathered to your kin and so can we just spend a moment talking about Moses reaction Moses and I heard a beautiful line on this is that this is the only place in the Torah that reverses the the noun of that verb vaidaber moshe el adonai lemor usually it's vaidaber adonai moshe lemor here it's vaidaber moshe el adonai lemor moses speaks to god saying and vaidaber is even the way that that word sounds speaking has a little has a tougher um, meaning it's i speak directly to you but instead of vayomer which is i speak lightly Vaidaber is, wait a minute, objection, Your Honor. Vaidaber is, I want to bring something up to your attention. And exactly what is it that he wants to bring? Let God appoint someone, Lord of God of all the winds, the spirits. Let him appoint someone, and then. You, 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 God. Um, either in your vast omniscient wisdom know the spirits of each person. This is this is a way I think Rashi says this. This is why you gotta you gotta pick a leader who you know the spirits of all people. You gotta pick a leader who will be good at 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 finding the right leadership for different people, or just you know God who knows that we are all living creatures or something like that. Um, you you know all these different ruchot. That, that that enliven our flesh, so you have to you have to appoint somebody over the eda. Yifkod Adunai Elohei Haruchod. Okay, Yifkod, remember, take account, note. But actually, um, it can also mean like the uh, a pekuda is a commandment. commandment. So Moses could be saying to God, "Okay, here's the next commandment you got to offer. <laughs> you, this is a commandment." This is the next command. It's really, really audacious of Moses. It's 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 perfect for Moses. He's already, you know, taking that initiative to to, to tell God what do you, what you need to do, and and so God. I mean, and then the beautiful phrase, which is the the people of God shall not be like sheep that do not have a shepherd. Okay. So in a way, you know, you want to say Moses is projecting himself onto the next leader. And, you know, the, the most uh, gracious reading of this is that Moses cares about the leadership. Moses, you know, here he was told he's going to die. And, you know, what do you think, that God is going to leave the people uh, without any leadership? No, Moses says, look, I, I, you need to appoint someone. You need to appoint someone who can be the shepherd. You need to appoint someone who will take them in and take them out, lead them into war and that kind of thing. In other words, you need to take a mini-me, right? <laughs> well, there's a, a, a subtle irony here because there's only one shepherd in Israel at this time. Yes. And that's Moshe himself. Indeed. Right, so when he says there, you should not have a people without a shepherd, he's saying that I think he's telling God, "You can't do this to me, yeah, because I am the shepherd." 
he wants to hold on in the, the midrash of course that that talks about his death you know has him holding on for dear life with everything he's got to to lead but but here i think there is a a moment of real grace to for moshe because he has to accept the fact that he is not going to live forever, and he has to accept the fact that he has a, su- a successor, and that his successor is going to be someone who is kind of not like him. Uh, Joshua has been a loyal servant, the Sancho Panza to the Don Quixote of Moses. You know, Joshua is uh, obedient, and Joshua is not a terrible risk taker, although. He will try and identify himself and define himself, certainly in the book of Joshua. Um, and um, mm. Moses, Moses, it, well, God says to Moses, Kach lecha et Yoshua ben Nun. I always like to, to interpret the lecha, like you said, lech lecha, and there's brach lecha, and here there's kach lecha, take for yourself. And, you know, my take on that would be, you know, this it's it's for you that you need to take him, Moses. <laughs> you, it's well, take in place of yourself. It's you, your for your sake. You need to have a successor because your successor will make you look good. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm inclined to think, like what you said, the the, the gracious reading of Moshe, um, that that. Moshe, for whom God said, you know, at any number of times, I said, I'm killing these people. I'm done with them. I'm going to start again with you. And you're going to be, you know, you're going to, you're going to be the progenitor. And Moshe always says, it's not about Moshe. It's about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's about, it's about uh, the ancestors and their covenant. Uh, We, we, uh, you know, we, we will, we'll fold in the covenant of the matriarchs as well, but, but that's not what the Torah actually says. But um, I'm inclined to like the gracious reading that Moshe says, the Moses who declined to start all over again, the Moses who was willing to be blotted out of God's book um, because of the people of Am Yisrael, says, "You're gonna, you're gonna go to the the, the mountain Avarim Hazeh. You're gonna go to the, the mountain of crossing over, and you're gonna stop, and you're not gonna cross over." And Moses says, "All right, pick pick somebody. Uh, I've been I've been good at this. Pick somebody else who can also be good at this." And I, there's a there's a midrashic thing that is um, that is uh, uh, in in this passage that expresses the idea of Moses's uh, graciousness. That um, uh, that God says, "I will benatata. You should Moses. You should natatam." Mehodecha, yeah, Allah, you should give him some of your glory. I don't expect, I don't expect you to give him all of your glory, and then you should place your hand upon him. And, and Moses does what God commands him, and he lays his hands up, plural, both hands, both hands. <laughs> so, so God said, you, you know, you should, you should like, you know, let him know he's your designated successor with a gesture of your hand, and Moshe goes both hands, yeah. and that's like, you know, beautiful that. Uh, you know what? What did what did Barack Obama say when when Donald Trump? If you succeed, we all succeed. And uh, you you know he wasn't happy when he said it, um, and he said the gracious thing. I, I but maybe it's something like that too. Moshe knows. Listen, I'd rather truthfully, I'd laugh rather than live forever. What did Woody Allen say? 
I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality by not dying. So Moshe, presumably Moshe doesn't want to die, but he says, all right, if you succeed, Yehoshua, we all succeed. Yeah, and the, the, the beautiful Midrash, which is that Mehotcha is, you know, I give him your glory, and the, the second is, I give him also some of mine, right? And and that so there's, there's a lot of graciousness to him. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, go ahead, Barry. Last it's word. important to point out why Moshe is giving Joshua his glory, whether we think it's all or some of it, and it's so the people will listen to him. Indeed. And one of the things that we hardly ever discuss is whether we think people listen better to Moshe or better to Yoshua. And it may be that if we take the interpretation that Moses is only giving some of his glory, with less glory, people are going to listen to him because they don't have quite the intimacy that they felt with Moshe when they could argue with him and they could disobey him because they felt that he would still protect them. And it may well, be that with Joshua, they never felt that way. That Moses is giving him legitimacy and and the grace that Moses is giving him is that he's not undermining him. And Moses, as we, we know, obviously could have terribly undermined his, uh, his successor by, by delegitimizing him. But you, but you do have, you do also have the idea here of, you know, Yeridat Hadorot, mm. like, okay, Joshua bin Nun, great though he is, he's not Moshe Rabbeinu. And the, the Talmud says, you know, Pnei Moshe ki Pnei Achama, Pnei Yoshua ki Pnei Halavana. Moses's radiance was like the sun and Joshua's radiance was like the moon. Not bad, <laughs> but but a reflection of the sun and not and not its own not its own, you know, source of radiance. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, we have to end it there. We, we there was so much missing in this parsha uh, that we didn't get a chance to talk about, namely the the sacrificial calendar, right, which is actually quite interesting. It reminds us of all the things that we recite on holidays and the Musaf and the importance of calendar and the importance of uh, the the sacred events and, and perhaps uh, this as a, a way of recalling uh, so much that went on in ancient Israel but we'll have to save that for a future Parsha talk on Pinchas. In the meantime it's been wonderful to be with you. We want to thank you for listening and watching, watching us. We want to wish everyone a beautiful Shabbat and we'll see you next week on another edition of Parsha Talk. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.